come to the time in our service now we'll look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, I don't know if any of you have memorized Genesis, so turn with me to... Almost? Courtney's almost there. Sweet. Genesis chapter 44. Uh, we've reached this climactic moment in the life of Joseph and his brothers and all that's going on in his family. So that's where I'm going to start. And we'll kind of skip through this, so I'll try to make it clear where I'm headed. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 44. Then he, this is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks, that's his brothers, with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Divination is uh, an ancient practice where they would look at different liquids mixed together and interpret prophecies and future events and all kinds of things. When he overtook them, he spoke these words to them, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak these words? To us, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Maybe speaking too soon there. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it will be my servant. The rest of you will be innocent. Then each man lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack and searched, beginning with the eldest, and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. We tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Clearly, not just thinking of the cup, but thinking of 22 years ago when they had sold their brother into slavery. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup was found. But he said to him, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in, who in, the hand, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go in peace to your father. And now Judah steps forward and delivers... One of the most incredible, well thought out, uh, clearly directed by the Spirit, speeches to his brother, not knowing it's his brother, in order to bring about his freedom. He tells him, the, he recounts the whole story of how they got there. Interestingly, Joseph learns the story they told his father when he didn't show up. So he knows now why his dad didn't come looking for him. Uh, he learns all these things, um, but basically saying, I, I, we can't leave the boy here. So pick it up in verse 30. This is Judah still speaking. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down his gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant 
remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him, and he said, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years, and yet there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he basically says, grab dad, grab everybody, bring them down here. I want to care for you and protect you here in this place. Verse 12, and now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and you must, and, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. Mm-hmm. And after that, his brothers talked with him. That's God's word. <laughs> Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes now to your word? Uh, speak powerfully to us through it and grow us and build us and shape us in all the ways that you desire to do that in each one of our hearts today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, he had been betrayed, abandoned. As far as anyone else knew, he was dead and gone, and now in Revealing his true identity, the fact that he was still very much alive, he leaves the room in stunned silence and probably fearing for their own lives. I'm referring, of course, to the classic reveal scenes of all times in modern cinema when Maximus, the betrayed general, reveals his true identity to Commodus, his betrayer. They're on the Colosseum floor, and when he's told, you must take off your helmet, reveal your true identity, says... My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, true servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. It's my best wrestle pro. I bring it up because as at last we reach this climactic scene in the life of Joseph. Because the fear that Commodus felt when Maximus reveals his identity and the fear that Joseph's brothers feel when he reveals their guilt and and reveals his true identity to them is the exact same fear that you and I work so hard in order to try to avoid having to experience in our own life. Namely, the fear of having our guilt exposed. We talked a lot about Revelation last week, and I think this area in particular 
is one of those areas we fear being revealed most of all, not simply because we don't like having like our bad judgments, our character flaws exposed to people, but because, just like Maximus stated to communists, we fear the vengeance. We fear the, the judgment of those that we wronged. And yet what we see beautifully pictured here in Joseph's response to his brother's guilt is an unexpected, unanticipated revelation of mercy and grace, rather than judgment, rather than the condemnation that they were expecting mm -hmm. at having their guilt exposed. Mm -hmm. Whenever we're afraid in life, what do we often do so, so many times? We turn on the light to reveal the truth, give us a proper perspective. My prayer for us today is that in spending some time looking at this climactic moment in Joseph's story, which ultimately pictures the message of the gospel, that we might begin to see the fear we have at having our own guilt exposed, radically diminished in the gospel light that Joseph's story reveals to us. In order to get that to that place, uncover that light, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you exposing the heart and then revealing identity. Exposing the heart and then revealing identity. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, if you... Open them again with me to our passage there, Genesis 44. Follow along with me as we continue to grow in our appreciation of and thanksgiving for the work of God in our hearts, which we continue to see in Joseph's life. is always meant for our good. So let's look first of all at exposing the hearts. Exposing the hearts. Apparently, it was not until 1816 that René Lenec invented what we know of as the first stethoscope where allowing doctors to more accurately hear and interpret heart and lung sounds in patients it would then be probably another i think they said 140 years beyond that when technology would advance to the level that we could have things like ultrasounds and ct scans where we could physically see the picture of a heart's health and what's going on inside which means well medically speaking anyway before that time, there was almost no way to determine the health of a heart until someone was already dead by means of autopsy. That was the only heart revealing going on there. But spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, the health of someone's heart or lack of it has been determined by things like listening, by observation, really for as long as history has been going. Um, remember, for instance, Jesus himself 2,000 years ago says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we can determine what's going on by the way people speak, the way they talk. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the, uh, India to, uh, the missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, who used the metaphor of a, a cup filled to the brim with water to describe the health of someone's heart. She said, whenever you're bumped, uh, whatever spills out of that cup reveals what was always inside to begin with. And in chapter 44 of our passage here, revealing and assessing the health of Joseph's brother's hearts, or perhaps more specifically, revealing if any change has taken place to the con con contents of their cup, he, he's doing this test to see what this is what Joseph's story, or this part of it, is all about. This is what he's trying to do in this section. Joseph's brothers were very clearly bumped 22 years ago and bumped hard, both by the favoritism of their father for Joseph as well as his kind of boasting, his self-aggrandizing yep. dreams, yep. and what spilled out of their hearts was jealousy, what was hatred, was murder. And so in light of this 
in a providential turn of events and what does appear to be a radical transformation in the brothers' hearts, Joseph orchestrates this last diagnostic test, if we could call it that, in order to see whether the contents of their cups has truly changed. We know the particulars of the test now, we just read them. Uh, it reads something like a Shakespearean play, but uh, he, he sends them back once again with their money, but this time puts that silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And then Joseph gives the script to the steward, sends the steward out to overtake the brothers with what they believed was a successful trip to Egypt. All of a sudden, not so much. And now, here they are headed back to Egypt, not knowing what they're going to face. But maybe you can see it already. The point of these details of Joseph's test, or, or bump, if we could call it that, according to that metaphor, is ultimately he wants to recreate the circumstances of his own betrayal 22 years ago, where a favored son is now faced with heading into slavery, and he wants to see, okay, what's going to spill out of your cups now when another favored son is being taken off into slavery? This is why in verse 10 and 17, both Joseph and his steward have to kind of go off script when the brothers keep saying, well, we will all be your servants, and they're like, no, 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 it's good. Just, uh, just the one in whose sack the cup was found. He'll be our slave. The rest of you can go. They want to set up the exact details of this scene from 22 years ago. And yet already we see there in verse 13, look, uh, when the brothers, even though Benjamin's the guilty one, they all load up their donkeys and all head back to Egypt with them. We see already there's, there really is a change going on in their hearts. And if this action alone left any doubt, Judah's incredible passioned speech to Joseph absolutely removes any of it because what becomes plain by the end of that speech is that not only is Judah willing to, to, to knowingly substitute himself for a favored son, take his place uh, as a slave, we also see in verse 31 and 34, his sacrifice is motivated by protection for the life and well-being of his father as well. I like this, Robert Alter, Hebrew scholar, notes this, what is remarkable is that now Judah can bring himself to accept the painful fact of paternal favoritism that was once the root of his brother's hostility towards Joseph. And, going on to add, 22 years earlier, Judah stood with his brothers and silently watched when the bloody tunic that they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. Now, he's willing to do anything to not have his father suffer in that way again. And I don't know if it's the same way for you as you read through this, but when you see the the guilt that his brothers had clearly carried all these years of their lives, and, and the change that, that really has taken place after 22 years, I, I almost start to feel sympathy for the brothers. And kind of like, like maybe, maybe Joseph's testing or his bumping years, maybe, maybe it's just like a little bit too cruel. Maybe it's just taking it a bit too far. But when we step back from the story and, and look at it in its full sweep, I think we begin to see a few important, actually really beautiful things that reveal that, that that may not be the case. First of all, when we remember, Joseph's actions here are not vengeful. That's the first thing to see. His actions are not vengeful. He's, he's not testing his brothers in, in, in order to punish them or some kind of retribution. But what he's doing, this is an invitation to shine light into an area of their lives, an area of their past that they might never otherwise have wanted to look at. Because you've got to remember the past here, like, what Joseph's brothers had done was not, like, mercilessly tease him as a boy, right? Like, they didn't beat him up a lot as a kid, and, and sort of that, that's what they're worried about. No, they, they sold their brother into slavery. 
they told their father that their brother was dead, and when he believed them, nobody said, hey, just kidding, he's somewhere in Egypt. They, they, they just let that go on. Yeah. And so just like revisiting his painful past was nowhere on Joseph's to revisit list, it's not on his brother's list either. They, they're not interested in going back to this point in their lives. But because Joseph senses God's clear leading in himself, and he sees real change taking place in his brothers, he proceeds to shine the light of grace into this dark place in his family's history. Thank you. But as you think about what this might look for your own life, I, I hope it's already obvious that for the first place, yeah, we, we shouldn't try to recreate what Joseph has done here. You shouldn't frame whoever you're trying to like make amends with for some kind of crime in order to work that out. Probably not uh, the right uh, way to work it out. But I hope you also see that there's some key things involved in what's going on with this testing. First of all, the fact that Joseph's heart is at peace, right? He, he's seeking reconciliation here, and there is real, he sees real indications of change in the life of his brothers already. He sees all that first before he ever initiates this reconciliation and this testing. I think that's important because if you don't see those same factors in your own life, if you know your heart is not at peace, you're really just ready to go like for round 320 with this person, or you're not actually seeing any signs or indications that there is an openness or change already in that person, any attempts to pursue reconciliation at that point are probably going to just end in further division. But secondly, something else I think important and beautiful that we see here is the way Joseph avoids, uh, he avoids the two common ditches on either side of reconciliation. On the one side, Joseph avoids the, the kind of heels dug in, fixed mindset that just looks at people who've hurt him, people who have destroyed his life, and they're like, you know what, that's what you're like, and that's what you're always going to be like, so why bother even looking for any change? We see that. That means when Joseph is pursuing this test, what he's showing is that he's actually open to seeing a difference in his brothers. He's not just kind of locking in, done with you, that's who you are. He's open to the change that could really be happening. He doesn't have just resign himself to his brothers' hearts and where they're at. On the other side, he also avoids the conflict avoidant, all too easy to forgive kind of mindset that just wants to kiss and make up, just wants to get the band back together no matter what, just push everything under the rug and let's not look at that without, you know, acknowledging the hurts that have taken place, without seeing real accountability taking. Joseph doesn't do that either, which means this testing of his brothers is also a sign that Joseph isn't just rushing back into relationship. He's taking cautious, reasoned approach that guards his, whole, his own heart from further hurt, but also, yes, gives his brothers opportunity to, to indeed show that change has in fact taken place in their hearts. And yes, the work is difficult, it's costly, it involves a lot of fearful high-risk, high-reward investments from Joseph. What we see is that the result of his willingness to do that, and in paying attention and pressing into the work of God that was taking place in Joseph's brother's heart through Joseph, we see that now, incredibly, in exposing their hearts, this at last now gives Joseph the freedom to expose his own. So let's look lastly here at revealing identity. Revealing identity. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a, a, a building demolition, a demolition take place before, when all the supports are taken away, or maybe a dam where the walls have become sufficiently compromised and it it releases all the contents behind it, but I think both of those pictures are perfect visuals 
of what's taking place now in Joseph's heart. As the diagnostic test that he put his brothers through, it, it, it reveals just what he had hoped it would reveal. As we see at the beginning of verse 45, he can barely even get everyone out the door before the last supports finally give way and now the flood of 22 years of grief, of, of hurt, of longing, yep. of unfulfilled hope just like sweep over him in a flood. And you can see there verse 2, look, he, he, he's weeping so loudly that not only the people in the house are hearing, it's like everybody in Egypt can hear got to think about, think about the flow of events here. This, in some ways, at this point, is probably still super confusing to his brothers because they don't know why he's doing this, right? So for them, they're just seeing this guy who they're waiting to find out what their judgment is. He starts crying. Like, imagine you're in a court case and your defense attorney gives his final address and then the judge just clears the courtroom and starts weeping. You're like, um, you need me to get somebody for you? Or, you know, they don't know what's going on. But when Joseph has controlled himself enough that he can at least speak, you see there in the first half of verse 3, Joseph solves the, the puzzle for his brothers, revealing his identity to them. I am Joseph. Guys, it's me. And I love the understatement of the second half of verse 3 there when it says, his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I'd say they would be pretty dismayed. That's That's putting it mildly. So here's Joseph's brothers, standing there dumbfounded, just like jaws on the ground at this revelation. And so I, I guess in order to bring clarity, he, Joseph reveals this historical data about his identity that only someone who was there on that fateful day 22 years ago would know. Guys, he, he says, I, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. He wants them to know, like, I really am that, that guy. But I think it's kind of like, ironically hilarious because he's trying to just bring clarity to the situation not not considering the fact that it's not just surprise that's keeping them quiet right now like it's probably terror at the same time yeah. at the fact that they're like no no we we know yeah we, we remember uh thanks for bringing that up again like just imagine meeting someone who you've done the worst possible thing to destroy their lives and they just show up one day and they're like hey it's me the one you did that horrible thing to you just, you're standing there and now it's like the fear is even greater because your guilt is exposed and now what's next? What's going to come from here? We're going to spend a lot more time next week in the last message of this series kind of looking at the interplay of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, how that works out in this part of the passage and the rest of Joseph's life. But what I want us to focus on here, just spend a few minutes considering from this part of Joseph's story in these remaining verses is that along with exposing their guilt and revealing his identity, Joseph is also revealing the identity of his brothers. What do I mean by that? Think about this. At the revelation of their guilt, as well as Joseph's identity, everything is laid out in front of them right now. What do you think Joseph's brothers saw as their identity in this moment? I think they see their identity as guilty, Yep. Condemned, mm -hmm. lowest of the low, worthy of, of whatever punishment or judgment might come on them right now. That's what they see as their identity in this moment. But look at what Joseph speaks into this identity crisis for his brothers, starting in verse 5 in chapter 45. Look, he says, 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land these two years, there are yet five years with which, with which there will be in either plowing or harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Essentially telling his brothers, guilty, condemned, judged, seen as unworthy of love. All, all the ways you're identifying your, yourself and you expect from your, being, your guilt being exposed, that's not your identity in my eyes. What is their identity for Joseph? Well, responsible, yeah. Yes, he doesn't gloss over what's happened at all. And yet the gracious and merciful identity that Joseph speaks over his brothers instead is forgiven, restored, loved, a, a part of God's sovereign purpose and plan to preserve Jacob's family, as well as in a bigger sense to, to preserve the promise that God had made to Abraham generations before, to make Israel into a nation as great as the stars in the sky. This is preserved because of what happened and you were a part of that. And as you think about what this could look like in your life and in mine today, I think what we're being shown in this part of Joseph's story is the incredible power of both understanding our own identity as well as the identities that we speak over others who are guilty before us. The incredible power that we have in those moments. Because although surely present through history, we're living in an age and culture right now of high accountability. An age where it seems like everyone is placed in categories of either oppressed or oppressor. And hear me, I think there's all kinds of really good things about, that, that, that are good and right about calling people to be accountable for things that they've said, for their actions. I think that's a good thing. That's a good result of this. And yet, I think what also happens whenever we become too immersed in that mindset is we can become all too easy to create a culture and a world where everyone is always seeing themselves as the victim of someone else. Yeah. Yep. And far too often we end up applying that high accountability to everyone except ourselves. Yep. So just think about Joseph's life as an example. Joseph is a victim, isn't he? He's standing here, he's got all the power, he's got his brothers exactly where he wanted them, and he, he, he truly has been victimized by his brothers. His life has been ruined. It sure didn't have to work out like this. And he's in this position to hold his brothers directly accountable for what they've done. And yet, what we see is that rather than use this power and position to claim his rightful status as a victim and really just perpetuate the dysfunction that has been part of Joseph's family long before him and his brothers were even part of the picture, he chooses instead to identify himself as a brother rather than a judge. He identifies himself as, he, that he himself is part of God's sovereign plan and not a victim of it. And in identifying himself that way, Joseph is then enabled to identify his brothers in a way that removes their fear of vengeance and judgment that they expect at having their guilt exposed. I mean, how do you identify that? That's a, that's a big question in our world today in all kinds of different ways, but as it relates to how we relate to others in the kind of relationships, in the kind of church, in the kind of culture or world that we want to live in going ahead, I think a part of what Joseph's story calls us to is to 
particularly in these areas where we are facing those who have wronged us, those who are guilty before us, is to always allow our identity to be formed first by an understanding of our place in God's sovereign plan and purpose. Where do I fit in that? Don't ignore the hurt, don't ignore the circumstances, but first begin with my place in God's sovereign purposes and plans. Because think about it. It was that exact understanding that lifted Joseph high enough above the circumstances of his life, painful as they were, to see his place in the grand narrative that God was working out. To see that this was actually preserving life. And although God's purpose for you is probably very different than Joseph's, I'm almost sure of it. I think allowing that same understanding to shape your own identity will enable you to rise above the circumstances of your own life and speak a very different identity over those who are guilty of offenses against you. And I think we can do that for others that are, that are fearful of facing the guilt that is exposed before us when we understand not just the larger purposes that God is working out, but also the cost involved in speaking a very different identity over us in the face of our guilt before God. Remember I said when we began, not only, we, not only are we seeing a climactic moment in the story of Joseph lived out, we're seeing the message of the gospel picture for us. Think about this. The guilt that we all fear to experience having exposed is the guilt that we have before God. Like Joseph's brothers, we stand guilty and condemned before a holy God, and not for pretend offenses like the cup and the sack for Benjamin, real offenses that we have committed both, both by commission and omission. And yet the amazing hope of the gospel is that just like Joseph, Jesus chose to identify as our brother instead of our judge. To welcome us back into relationship with him, to say to us, guilty, condemned, judged and seen as unworthy of love. That's not your identity in my eyes. You can do that, not because he's just simply overlooking offenses, but because, like Judah, Jesus offered himself in our place. And he didn't just offer himself, he took our place, actually. Erasing our guilt, canceling our debt that we owed, and restoring us back to relationship once again with our Heavenly Father. That's why the Apostle Paul can begin Romans 8 saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. That's why he writes later, Colossians 2, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, by stepping into our place and taking our punishment leading to the, one of the most incredible identifying statements at all, of all that Jesus now speaks over us when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, John writes, 1 John 3, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Amen. Amen. Before Jesus, all of our identities remained guilty and condemned. And like Joseph's brothers, all those 22 years we lived in constant fear of having that guilt exposed. But in love, God sent Jesus to willingly put himself in our place so that now we might no longer have to live in fear of judgment and condemnation ever again. 
you know Jesus as your Savior and as your brother today, may having that new identity revealed in you enable you to see both the purpose and plan of God beyond your circumstances, but also to pronounce the unexpected message of mercy and grace over those who are expecting judgment for their offenses against you. And if you've never before experienced the astonishing, debt-canceling gifts of Jesus' work of substitution, may you receive it today by faith. And may you too know the joyful, tear-filled embrace of your brother Jesus, who frees us for all time from the fear of judgment and welcomes us as family.